online. How's it hanging, Cake Nation? And welcome back to the Chemistry Cake online podcast, where chatting about chemistry has never been sweeter. Chemistry Cake is online, and today we are kicking off our first season focusing on astrochemistry and atmospheric chemistry. So, today's sweet guest is my good friend Olivia Harper Wilkins. She received her bachelor's degree in mathematics from Dickinson College and is currently a PhD candidate at the California Institute of Technology, aka Caltech, studying astrochemistry. She is also an incredible, incredible artist and does a ton of sci-art pieces that I am absolutely in love with. Liv, thank you so much for being with me today and chatting. Um, The last time I saw you was during the ACS Fall 2019 National Meeting in San Diego. So how have you been since then? To be honest, not great. Um, San Diego was a lot of fun, um, but it was exhausting. And as soon as I found out, or as soon as I got back from San Diego, I found out that Caltech is selling my apartment building. So I had to move a few weeks ago unexpectedly. Um, so I'm mm-hmm. very, very tired because <laughs> it's been, uh, oh, you know, kind of yeah. a rough time. It's like I was going to come back and just do research, but, you know, life happens. But other than that, I've been good since then. Oh, good. That's good to hear. I'm sorry to hear about the, the whole moving situation. That is really stressful. Uh, but uh, good to hear that um, things are good otherwise. Um, so folks at home, I actually attended Liv's talk during the meeting and it was stellar. Uh, so Liv, <laughs> um, Liv, you study astrochemistry, like like the chemistry of space, which blows my mind because generally when I think of chemistry, I think of it being on like a really really tiny scale and space is like on like a gigantic scale so would you help me wrap my mind around this like what are the nuances of of astrochemistry yeah so i can certainly help but i like you um and constantly having my my mind blown uh by astrochemistry and just the sheer size of of space but um yeah i mean it's it's so weird for me to think Uh, back to uh, when I took chemistry courses in undergrad, and you're talking about chemistry that happens uh, in laboratories on pretty short timescales. And like a long experiment is considered something that might run overnight or take a few days. But a lot of the chemistry that happens in space, um, specifically in the interstellar medium, which is the spaces between stars, uh, takes millions of years to form the products um, that, that we can observe today. Um, so what I do as an astrochemist is I, uh, I use radio telescopes, which are these giant satellite dish looking things. Um, these, uh, telescopes act as my, um, detectors, uh, as if they were a spectrometer and they're equipped with, um, equipment so that I can do spectroscopy. So I'm doing, uh, I'm collecting data in a way similar to what I would do if I were in the laboratory. Um, it's just, I can't actually touch the chemicals that I'm using in space because I'm looking at laboratories that are uh, thousands of light years away. Um, But even though the actual laboratories are pretty big um, and they're places where new stars are being formed, where the actual chemistry is happening, or at least the chemistry I'm interested in, um, is they're happening on these dust grains. So these very fine uh, particles of carbon that are smaller than 
a micron across or a micrometer across. Uh, and these dust particles act as catalysts for chemistry out in space. So you have complex species like methanol is considered complex. Anything that has six or more atoms is considered complex in the interstellar medium. And you have these that are forming on these dust grains, uh, which is which is really cool um, because uh, it's all invisible to us. You know, in a in a laboratory, you get pretty crystals that are are forming quite often. Um, if that's the type of chemistry you do, but uh, the chemistry that we're looking is looking uh, at strictly invisible light. We're looking at these clouds that are invisible to the naked eye, uh, which is another really cool thing is that uh, not only am I looking at chemistry in these large laboratories, but I'm looking at invisible laboratories, which I just think is so wild. That is, that's insane. So, so when we're talking about invisible light, we're talking about like infrared and UV. So when uh, I'm talking about invisible light, there is some infrared that I'm doing, uh, but mostly what I'm doing is at uh, microwave wavelengths, so in the radio. Uh, interesting. So, huh? How how does that work? Yeah, so um, the the techniques that I'm using to study the chemistry is all rotational spectroscopy. Um, so I'm okay. looking at the rotations and vibrations of these molecules in space, um, and they're emitting this energy that travels thousands of light years to Earth where we collect it with this giant satellite dish. And the energy from these uh, these photons that are coming to Earth uh, from these faraway objects have are, are less than that of a snowflake falling to Earth. So that's like really cool too, is that there's not a whole lot of energy that we're getting from these objects, but it's enough that we're able to uh, learn about their chemistry. So what kind of information does this type of spectroscopy give? So the most important piece, I would say, is that we can uh, figure out what types of molecules are out there. Uh, so the first thing that we can do is we can look at a spectrum, which acts kind of like a chemical fingerprint uh, for uh, the different objects that we look at, and use that to figure out what um, what molecular species are out there. So if you're not familiar with spectroscopy, um, it's kind of like... Uh, the FBI with a fingerprint database and they lift a fingerprint from a crime scene and they can use that fingerprint uh, to um, figure out who the culprit is of a crime. And we do a very similar thing where we have this spectrum, it acts as a fingerprint and we can cross-reference that with a database um, that's built up from um, theoretical modeling and also um, experimental data uh, to give us um, the identity of different molecules that are out there. Uh, but we can also figure out how um, much of this stuff there is out there. So we can figure out densities, uh, we can figure out temperatures, and quite often uh, molecules will be used as kind of a thermometer for uh, physical temperature out in um, interstellar space. Um, and we can also use uh, chemistry to try to understand the physical structure of different objects by looking at for species that might show up in only one environment. So for instance, uh, silicon monoxide or SIO um, is uh, thought to only be found um, in these really high energy mm -hmm. jets coming from um, a fairly young star. So if you see SIO, you're looking at probably something that's coming out of what's called a protostar or um, a very young star versus a molecular cloud that is still in in a more infant stage. So you can kind of use it to uh, tag and categorize different objects in space. That's so cool. I, 
I think that, okay, I, I'm going to like nerd out just a little bit here because I am absolutely in love with spectroscopy. I, I feel like if I wasn't, um, if I wasn't a synthesist at heart, I would um, definitely be a spectroscopist. So like, so for example, right, I, infrared spectroscopy gets, inform, it gets its information right from the bond vibrations of like stretching and bending um, and like NMR get its information from like flips of the nuclei. Um, and that uses microwaves and, and that tells you a lot about the chemical environment, right? Of the molecule. So what does it tell you about the molecule, this type of spectroscopy that you're doing? Like, it's, it's really cool that it, like you're looking at the rotations of these, um, of these molecules. And so I was just like, what is this? What does this tell you? I want to know. Tell me your secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so we use the spectroscopy to get out the things like the abundance and the temperature, but we can also use the spectroscopy to differentiate between things that are um, higher energy or more excited um, and things yeah. that are pretty much in their ground state and not very excited at all. Um, so it can mm-hmm. also help us see if in one object, you have different types of chemistries. Like maybe you have radiation that's affecting one area of a nebula or a stellar nursery um, versus another area. So it's a, it's a cool quantitative and also qualitative tool that we can use. Stellar nursery, a very good like greenhouse. Got it. <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. I just thought it was okay. Anyway, so what are you working on specifically? I think you mentioned methanol. Uh, and so what, what work are you doing? So um, right now I am looking at data from the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, or ALMA, which is a radio telescope in Chile. Um, it's, a, it's what's called an interferometer. So instead of having one single dish, there are 66 individual uh, dishes that work as one giant telescope. Um, so I'm looking at the Orion Climbing Low Nebula. Um, so winter's coming up. Um, so if you, winter is coming, yes, or at least in the Northern hemisphere. (laughs) So, um, even though winter is coming is bad, uh, it's also great for if you're into constellations because the Orion constellation, at least in the Northern hemisphere is going to be rising, uh, coming up here so that we can see it Mm -hmm. at night. Um, so, uh, if you're, um, able to see the Orion constellation and you look below the middle star of the belt of the constellation Orion, um, there's this reddish blob that you can see even in the light polluted mess of Southern California. Like I can see it from my apartment and I'm right outside of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where I'm looking is in Mm -hmm. that reddish blob. So it's really cool that I actually know where I'm looking because quite often astronomers don't know where in the sky they're actually studying. But anyway, what I'm interested in is trying to understand how methanol chemistry uh, happens in Orion KL. Um, So right now I'm working on trying to uh, figure out how much uh, methanol there is, um, specifically using carbon-13 methanol um, and the temperature of that methanol. So the reason I'm using carbon-13 methanol is that um, there's so much carbon-12 methanol that it's what we call optically thick. Right. So um, it saturates it saturates <laughs> our, our telescope and we just can't, um, like the, the spectral lines that we get uh, kind of plateau off um, and we right. underestimate how much there is. So we use carbon-13 as a proxy. Um, and the goal is to look at the deuterium chemistry there and try to understand uh, whether... Uh, the methanol that formed, formed uh, in the very early stages of star formation, 
um, or whether they formed a little bit later. So you can look at the ratios of uh, singly deuterated uh, species to the regular, or in my case as a proxy, carbon-13 methanol. Um, and then you can also look at the doubly deuterated, which would be a future goal of mine, um, and try to trace back the chemistry and see whether methanol forms early on or whether it forms on later and closer to star formation, or maybe if there's different tracks of formation. Wow, that's super. Well, okay, so so you're looking at two different isotopes here, right? You're looking at carbon-13 and you're, you're um, looking at heavy hydrogen or deuterium. Uh, yes. Cool. Actually, um, uh, on a previous episode, uh, Rob Ulrich was actually talking about using um, isotopes of heavy carbon and heavy oxygen. So I just think that it's so cool uh, what you can do with isotopes. Uh, yeah, for real. Oh, man, that's so cool. Oh, my mind is so blown. The universe is so <laughs> wild and so cool. Oh, I love this. I love this so much. Um, okay, so... I wanted to shift topics just a little bit. Um, and I mentioned previously that you do some really cool sci art, like, like so, so cool, really wonderful science themed pieces. Um, some of them I've seen on your website, some of them I have and own. Um, like I went on your website and like was like, oh, yeah, I'm like going to support this cause. I'm going to buy this sticker. And then I saw the other stickers and I was like, well, I guess I'm buying all of them. Um, and so your work is phenomenal. And I just wanted to ask, like, what got you into SciArt? Like, I've also seen, um, some of your conference notes and they're like, it's like you, you did this during the talk. Like, I like look at my notes after a talk and they look like chicken scratchings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I've always been into art and, um, I felt in particularly in high school that I had to make a decision between science and art. Art classes were offered at uh, what was called in my high school, the fundamental level. So getting an A in that class was the equivalent of getting a B in an honors course. So it would really pull down your GPA. Um, So because there was so much less value placed on art, I just stopped doing art for a while in in high school. But I've, I've painted throughout my entire life. Um, but what really got me into sci art was there were a couple of things that got me into different facets of it. So you mentioned my conference notes, and that's probably the first place where I started to get into specifically sci art. And I realized that as I was going to talks or when I was reading journal articles, when I was taking notes, I was writing down every single detail and I wasn't understanding the big picture. And quite often I wouldn't even look back at my notes. So I thought, Instead, I would, since since my notes weren't being used anyway, and it was kind of a, like they were kind of a waste of paper for me, uh, I thought that I would try to do some sketching. And that would force me to really think about the main ideas. If I could do an illustrated summary, then I'd be able to pull off the main ideas from that. It would make sure that I understood that. And then I'd still have a citation where I could always look up more, either look at that specific paper or look up papers by the presenter. And what I found was that I was remembering information a lot better and I was understanding conference talks a lot better. And part of it was because I could as I was drawing the pictures, they would kind of imprint on my mind. So when I was thinking of that topic later, it was really easy for me to flip through my notes, find the picture I was looking for, look at the, the presenter, or if it was for a paper, the author, and then I'd be able to look up the details, which is what I had been taking notes on in the first place, but then was never using them and could never find those references again. So 
it's kind of like illustrated abstracts that have really helped me. So it worked for a couple of conferences. And then I just started doing it all the time. I started posting them to Twitter and people were really encouraging and and seem to enjoy them. So it's something that I try to keep up with. But then the other the other stuff, like, uh, so you mentioned uh, stickers, I, I make zines, I paint ornaments, I do canvas paintings, I design enamel pins. And I started doing all of this, um, I guess, a little over a year ago now, because I was, I was really stressed out and feeling, well, feeling pretty incapable as a scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a this was a fun, creative way for me to be in touch with science and feel like I was being productive. I mean, even if it's not something that, you know, is going to help me towards my PhD, finishing a sketch of, of Alma, the telescope I'm using, helped me feel more connected to it, right. um, which was kind of, you know, like an empowering and, and a comforting experience. So when I started to really get into art again, it was to pull me out of this feeling of not feeling like I really knew what my place was in science at the moment. And I started selling it because I have a family. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a three-year-old son and my husband, and we live, the three of us, in very expensive Southern California with just my stipend as an income. And I really enjoy doing outreach, but uh, to drive places to buy materials is was starting to eat up my stipend Mm -hmm. that was you know, that I needed to reserve for things like rent and food. So I started selling things online to help offset the costs of that. And that's been really nice because gas, especially in SoCal, is very expensive. Ooh. So this, this helps cover that. <laughs> you were preaching to the choir. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> Ooh, like, uh, just, whew, just. I, I, I live in La Jolla, so like gas prices here are like summa cum laude gas prices. And I'm like, can you like reduce it down to maybe like academic probation gas prices? That'd be great. Thank yes, you. Please. Um, yes, please. <laughs> but I, I wanted to so your your conference notes and, and and you know, your sketch of Alma helping you feel more connected to your project. I I draw things in my notebook just because I'm a very visual person and and it helps me how can I relate to this more I suppose um there was actually one day where I was just so exhausted and like it was apparent when you know some of my lab mates my PI was trying to talk to me and I just I wasn't processing the words that they were saying to me and I still had to do an experiment and so I tried to write it down I just was messing up the words I was messing up the numbers so I was just like you know what forget this, I'm just going to draw a sketch of what I'm going to do. And so like my mind was actually processing these pictures far more receptively than if I were to just write out the words because I was just so tired. And so I think art and science are not mutually exclusive. In fact, I think art and science really, they really consolidate each other and and there's a benefit to being a being artistic in science and being scientific about art too. Like, um, like I know when I'm stressed out, I write parodies about ICP or whatever. <laughs> I just like it just helps put the stress off. And I like deal with things with humor, but I I definitely definitely advocate for more art in science because we we both do chemistry, right? Like there are hexagons all over a page um, in any you know organic. 
um, or organometallic book that you see or, or like lattices and any like solid state paper that you may find and the colors and inorganic chemistry is just like nature is such a beautiful artist. Oh, for sure. You were talking about how they're really intertwined and how they really do feed off of each other, art and, and science. And I think that's only something I, I started to appreciate fairly recently, which I think is kind of funny because thinking back on it, when I was a first year in undergrad, I got the opportunity to start doing research in a chemistry lab. And the reason I got to start doing that was because the professor who became my undergraduate advisor, Amy Witter, thought that my lab notebook was just beautiful. And the sketches that I was doing for this chemical ecology lab, she thought, that they were just really cool. And that's uh, a big, I think that was a big part of why she asked me to be in her lab. So I thought that was kind of cool. And I didn't think about it until now that it's been helpful for me in multiple ways, like getting me a lab position. Right. right. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. And this is super sweet. I, I really... I'm really excited for you, but you're doing SciArt. I know that I appreciate it and will happily uh, retweet every like tweet that you have about your pins and your stickers. And it's just so, it's so cool. Ah, I'm so happy that you're doing this. Thank you. Yeah. It's like, ah, okay. Anyway. Okay. So I, we're going to shift from art to something very important. I mean, like not, not to say that science and art aren't important, but this is this is like a pretty important question because we're on the Chemistry Cake podcast, right? Yes. Um, so, favorite cake flavor and why? This question is so hard. So I'm sorry, it has two parts. Okay. Because at first I said German chocolate cake, which mm-hmm. I actually have a beef with because it's not actually German. Mm-hmm. It was made originally in Texas. Huh. And the last name of the baker who made it um, was German. So ah. someone German. Um, and I mean, I love the flavor, but also um, I had spent a year in Germany before coming to Caltech. So I'm a little irritated that German chocolate cake isn't actually German because um, <laughs> no one there knew what it was at all. So that was kind of embarrassing. Very honesty. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I'd have to say that my favorite cake is the cake that my mom makes me for my birthday. It's just a mm-hmm. boxed um, chocolate cake. But then the icing she puts on it is so amazing. It's this, I think it's an old family recipe. It's called Seal's Icing. And it is like, I don't know, it's just, it's really good homemade icing. It's not too sweet. Um, and it just, it tastes like just tastes like home and being loved. So I'd have to say that that's my favorite cake. That icing sounds phenomenal. And I'm going to have to come visit so that your mom can make me this cake. Because Uh, now I want to know what this old family recipe for this icing is. Because like, okay, I love cake. But in my opinion, the icing makes the cake. Yes. I know that some people have like some people have other opinions about that. They don't like icing or they don't like frosting. And, and and typically the reason is because it's too sweet, which is like, see, but that's the thing, right? Like amazing icing isn't confectionery. It's got this really nice balance of like sweetness and saltiness and just like the right texture. Like I my favorite icing is um 
cream cheese frosting done well. And actually there is a difference between like icing and frosting, but we won't get into that because this isn't a cooking show. Although there is some chemistry behind that. So maybe we'll talk about that in some future episode. But anyway. Yes, please I do because I want to know the okay. difference. <laughs> I have, oh my gosh. I have so many like maybe I should do like a mini series of just like, oh yes, like chemistry of food or coffee or tea because like this is uh, this is just what I do in my spare time. It's fine. I'm not a nerd. It's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that sounds amazing. So we're going to have to chat after this uh, so that I can get my hands on some of that cake. But um we are nearing the end of our chat Liv it has been such a delight such a delight to have you on the show thank you so much so so much for chatting with me uh listeners at home thank you for joining in on this chat if you would like to follow the many astrochemical adventures of Liv you can follow her on twitter at live without limit that is at l-i-v-w-i-t-h-o-u-t-l-i-m-i-t um, if you would like to follow her sci art adventures, you can follow her on Instagram with the same handle. And if you would like to support her amazing art, her pieces are available on her website, and I will link those all in the description. And of course, if you would like to partake in the hype and join the Cake Nation, you can follow me on Twitter at Chemistry Cake, and you can follow the podcast at Chemistry Cake online. Folks, it is always a pleasure and a privilege to serve as the Cake Nation's official hype person. This is your weekly reminder to stay hydrated, to keep the hype alive, and to edify your village. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This is Chemistry Cake, signing off. Mm.